The Apostle John wrote three letters to the church, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation. He authored the book of Revelation, and he wrote the gospel that bears his name. And all of those letters of John, including his gospel, were written somewhere around 95 A.D. John was the the longest-lasting apostle. He uh, outlived everybody else. We know that Peter and uh, uh, Paul were martyred in about 64 maybe 65, 66, somewhere around there, A.D. So this is some 30 years after the uh, the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. Now, the reason that's significant is because we know that by the time Peter and Paul were killed, the rest of the books that make up the New Testament were already written. And it's interesting to me that John comes after the other three Gospels were written, read, circulated after the the letters of Peter and Paul were written and circulated around. Everybody knew of these things. And then the Holy Spirit inspires John to write a gospel. Not to tie up any loose ends because there really aren't any loose ends in the scripture. But to fill in the gaps. To let us know things that the other gospel writers didn't know. John was the the apostle that Jesus loved as he writes of himself. And had a first-hand bird's-eye view of a lot of the things that, uh, that others would not have. He's had 30 years. Well, he's been, he's been saved for 60-some-odd years. And he's had 30 years since the last thing that was written in the New Testament. To hear from the Holy Ghost. To be reminded of the Holy Ghost or by the Holy Ghost of the things that Jesus said while he was with them. He comes from a... a fantastically unique position to tell us things and the the best things of that in my estimation were the things that he told us about on the last night that Jesus was with the disciples the night that he was betrayed John 14 and 15 tell us about the things that Jesus said within hours of being betrayed by Judas and being taken before Pilate Well, first the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, and then after that to Pilate. And so John comes in and tells us things that nobody else knows. None of the other gospel writers, well, I shouldn't say they didn't know, but Matthew, who is one of the 12 as well, had an opportunity to tell us, but that's not the way the Holy Ghost inspired him to write. But there was something that was so important that God wanted us to hear and see. And know that he commissioned John at the end of his life to write these things and to to inform us of what took place. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way, you know. Now, the only time that I really ever hear these scriptures preached is at a funeral. And it's, these are words that are intended to comfort people regarding our eternal home and so forth. Now, I grew up in Southern Baptist Church, and I don't know that this is Southern Baptist doctrine, so I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just telling you how it went for me. 
I don't know if anybody ever told us this or if we just kind of got the idea through association or, or exactly what it was, how we came up with this. But the general idea was that Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, commissioned the church to go and make disciples of all men. And then Jesus went to heaven. And these verses, it was at least implied, if not told us, identified that Jesus, the purpose that Jesus is uh, in heaven at the moment, and that is he's making houses. After all, he was a carpenter. And that when Jesus finishes our houses, that's when he's going to come back and get us. Now, I'm amazed that, that that idea was accepted in any way whatsoever. But that's really the way I grew up thinking about the return of Jesus. And Southern Baptists are great on the rapture, great on looking for Jesus to come back. But folks, the Bible says everything that was created in this physical realm was created by Jesus and for him. He made the earth in six days. And he's been taking 2,000 years to build houses in heaven? And beside that, if that's his purpose, if, if what he's saying, now notice the terminology he uses. Let me read it again. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. <clears throat> in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to pre prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Notice this phrase, that where I am. That where I am, you may be also. And whether I go, you know, in the way you know. Notice he did not say, and where I'm going, you'll be with me. Notice he did not say that where I'm going to be, you will be with me. He said where I am. Now, I want you to consider something, folks. If the whole thing is about Jesus building houses for us in heaven, if that's the preparation he's making, if that's the reason that he says, I go and prepare a place for you, if that's what it's all about, what good would it do you or me or anybody else? Because, see, if he didn't make a substitute, if he wasn't a substitute for our sins, if this preparing a place for you is not about the place where he is and standing with God at that moment, which was a place of righteousness, then without righteousness, you could never get to heaven and see what your house looked like anyway. No, when he says, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. He's talking about a relationship with God. He's talking about a position of righteousness. Now, Jesus earned his. He was born of the spirit of God, of a virgin. So he bypassed the law of sin and death that came down through Adam. And uh, because of Adam's sin, he was born into this world, a righteous human being, a righteous man. And he maintained that righteousness throughout all of his life. If he hadn't, he couldn't have been a worthy, uh, worthy sacrifice. If he had not kept himself from sin all of the days of his life, then there would have been a spot or a blemish on his life caused by that sin that would have made him an unworthy sacrifice for you and me. Folks, he's talking about a righteousness. He's talking about a position with God. Now notice the very next thing it says as he concluded what we just read, and where I go, you know, and the way you know, <clears throat> Thomas said unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
If you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the father and it will suffice us. It will satisfy us. Jesus said unto him, have I long, been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the father. And how sayest thou then, show us the father? Believest thou not that I am in the father and the father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, folks, the Bible tells us that, I think it's Mark chapter 16, verse 14, that when Jesus, after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to the disciples where they were sitting down to eat. And it says that he upbraided them for their hardness of heart. He upbraided them. He rebuked them. He chastised them. For their hardness of heart, because they had not seen him yet and didn't believe the report of others who had seen Jesus resurrected or risen before they did. Now, in Matthew, let me read a scripture to you in Matthew. I think it's chapter 16. I'm going to come back to this, so don't go far. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, tells us that after Jesus questions his disciples, you remember when he was at Caesarea Philippi, he said, who do men say that I am? And they spoke up and said, well, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Some even say that you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead or reincarnated. And then Jesus asked, he said, who do you say I am? And you remember Peter answered. We assume that he's answering for the group, but we really don't know that for certain. But Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now after these things, it tells us in verse 21, it says, From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. So when Jesus does appear to him, when he is risen from the dead, and he appears to him in Mark chapter 16, he expects them to have believed what he told them. He told them clearly. He told them specifically. There's no more parables for them to figure out. He's sharing with them, telling them point blank, when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be taken captive. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be taken before Pilate as well as the high priest. I'll be killed. And after the third day, I'll be risen or raised again from the dead. He expected them to believe that. Well, God hadn't changed. He feels the same way about anything and everything that he's told us in his word. That which he says in his word, he expects us to believe and hold on to. 
Now, what I want you to see about these verses of Scripture in John chapter 14, when Thomas says, or was it Philip that said, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied? He didn't believe what Jesus had told him. Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. Thomas knew very little about anything, apparently. And the whole chapter 14 and chapter 15 are about Jesus trying to comfort them because they're concerned because he's going away. He winds up telling them, it's better for you that I go away because the Holy Ghost can't come if I don't. Again, pointing to the work that he's going to do as our substitute, not some housing development in heaven. He's going to prepare a place for us where we have right standing with God the Father. Righteousness. A place where our sins are forgiven. Not just forgiven, but wiped away. Righteousness. He expects us to believe that he's going to accomplish this place with God that he is, not that he's going to. See, folks, when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, this must have been the prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, at least to the point where the disciples fell asleep. When he prays in John chapter 17, he prays some beautiful and wonderful things for you and me. And he identifies that he's not just praying for the disciples that he had then, but all those that would believe on him through their word. And that's us. So he prayed some things for us. He prayed that we would have the same glory that he had. Now he's talking about the glory that he had here on the earth because he goes further and says, Father, after this is over, restore unto me the glory that I had with you before the world began. So that's the glory that Jesus laid aside. That's the power and the glory that he laid aside to come to the earth to be a man. And he's praying for you and me to have the same place of authority and power to operate here on this earth that he had himself. Now, why did he have that? Because he was a righteous man anointed of the Holy Ghost. So what's the place that he's intending to prepare for you and me? Righteous men and women anointed of the Holy Ghost. And he says, when I prepare that place, when I complete the, prepa the preparation for that place, in other words, when I achieve and obtain righteousness for all of mankind, then I'll come back. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4, the last, cha last verse of chapter 4, the Bible says Jesus was raised, King James says, raised for our justification. That's really a poor translation. It's true enough, but it's not all-inclusive. Because what it really says from the Greek, what it really says is that he was raised when we were justified. It's talking about a point in time. He's not talking about a reason. It's talking about a specific point in time, a moment in time. And it says when we were justified, in other words, when the price was paid, when he suffered everything that he had to suffer to accomplish, uh, to accomplish righteousness for you and me, then he was resurrected, but not a second before then. Not a second after, but it was a completed work. And notice what that place of righteousness is intended to provide. Look at the authority that he speaks of.
he talks about to Philip, he says, believe me for the work's sake. Or I guess it's Thomas that he says, believe me for the work's sake. In other words, the work should be signed, assigned to you that God is with me. How could God be with anybody? The Jews were real big on this. They understood through the ritual sacrifices. The Jews understood that righteousness was just something that God credited to us by the, the, the sacrifice of animals, bulls and goats and such. But we couldn't really be righteous on our own. And they were right because of the sin nature that passed, on, passed upon us because of Adam's sin. But when he starts talking about our place with God the Father being the same as his, notice what he says, verse, 14, verse 13 rather, and whatsoever you shall ask, the word ask means to call for or require. doesn't mean to beg God. It means to use the place, a position of authority that you've been given. Whatsoever you shall call for or require in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask, same word, call for or require anything in my name, I will do it. Now, folks, there's two points I want you to get here. First of all, the authority that we have on the earth, the promises that Jesus made to us, saying that if we ask or called for or required anything in his name, he would do it. And then he says it the second time for emphasis. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Notice that's based on a relationship with God, the righteousness that he obtained for us through his crucifixion. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise. You may remember Isaiah chapter, 50, chapter 54, verse 17. Let me read this to you. It says, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the saints of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Their righteousness is of me. Notice what that righteousness provides. The heritage that he's talking about is victory. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. It doesn't say the devil won't throw weapons at you. Won't use his weapons against you. But they won't succeed. So righteousness, even in the Old Testament, righteousness was understood, at least by God. Don't know if the people accepted it or not. But righteousness was, was explained and revealed to us as the source, the very foundation for the victory that he expects us to enjoy in life. Now, folks, there's a lot of talk in the culture that we live in today about people identifying themselves their self-identification we know that science tells us and biology identifies male and female but look at all the stuff that's going around with people identifying themselves as something else i i if i got my information correct in the state of new york there are 31 things that somebody can identify themselves with how do you come up with 31 things people can think they are besides male or female? I'm going to have to go with science on that one. I, I, you know, California's got a place where if you get a driver's license now, you have to declare what you think you are. Thank you, California, for helping. 
But there's a lot of things, a lot of spiritual applications that you can apply to some of these things. Because the Bible says, well, let's read it. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's read it first before we comment on it. All throughout the Old Testament, several times, three of the prophets tell us that the covenant that God intends to make with man is a new covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant, but a new covenant. And that new covenant is he'll put a new heart or a new spirit within us. And then he'll put his spirit inside of our new spirits. You remember the the parable that Jesus talked about. He said, you can't put new wine in old wineskins because the bottles will break. The old wineskins will break and then the the new wine will be poured out. Well, that's a reference to putting this new spirit within us. And the purpose that God said that he wanted to do that was so that he could dwell in us. He could walk in us. We could be his people and he would be our God. The whole thing, the whole concept is so that nobody else would have to tell you about God. But you would know him for yourself because he dwells in you. That's the way God wanted it. That's the way he created it to begin with. That's the way it was with Adam and Eve before they fell. And so that's what God's been in the business of restoring. The, the position that Jesus came to restore us to. Thank God he accomplished that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. The old things that passed away was the same thing Jesus was talking about with the wineskins. The old things that passed away were the stony heart, the spiritually dead man that we were before we found Jesus. So he said, if any man be in Christ, if any person be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. One translation says a new species of being. That's a good translation. Because that new species of being, it turns us in from being normal, carnal, physical, spiritually dead people into God men and women. Now, I know some people get offended when you say things like that, but that's absolutely the truth. And there's no other way you can really say it and convey it in, a, in, in any other way, the way God wants it to be, in comparison to the way God wants it to be. He wants you to know you're a God man or a God woman. If you're born again, you're not just a mere man. Paul got onto people in the Corinthian church because they were living in sin. He said they were living as mere men. You're not intended to be a mere man anymore. Now, I'm using the word man to be inclusive of all mankind. You're, just, you're not just a human being anymore. You're a divinely indwelt man or woman. And remember that righteousness, that place that Jesus accomplished for us, that thing that comes upon us or makes us, recreates us into is the whole purpose for why Jesus came. He came to make us God men and women. Righteous before God and anointed with his spirit to do whatever work he's given us to do.
Let's keep reading. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation or a new species of being. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And all these things that become new are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, in other words, here's what the ministry of reconciliation is, is supposed to look like. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto, them, unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did, by, did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Where righteousness was credited to the Old Testament worshipers of God, the Jews, it was imputed unto them. It was counted to their favor when they kept the ritual sacrifices. It's not counted to your favor. It's not a temporary thing with us like it was with them. They had to redo these ritual sacrifices over and over and over and over and over. Even the Day of Atonement only covered their sins for a one-year period of time. That's why the Bible doesn't talk much about uh, in the New Testament about atonement. It talks about redemption. Because redemption is the removal of sins. Atonement was just the covering over. There's only one place in the New Testament that the word atonement is used, and it's really not used correctly. It's translated atonement, but it's not really the, the same word as the Old Testament spoke of. But the Bible talks about in the New Testament, for you and me, it talks about redemption. It talks about being made a new spirit being. Now, I don't know how that works. Think about it. In a moment of time, God takes out the old heart or the old spirit and replaces it with a new spirit. In the blinking of an eye, you don't even miss a breath when you get born again. How does that work? How can he do that? My only answer to that is, I don't know, he's God. But it's an instantaneous thing. You and I are made righteous instantly. It's not a gradual thing that we grow into. It's not a process that we, through good works, gain. And the reason for that is because our righteousness is of God. Now, I said what I said a minute ago about people identifying with all kinds of things, sexual orientations and so forth. Because there's a spiritual application there. I read an article a couple of weeks ago, tragic. It's about somebody that, a transgender person that had had the sexual reassignment surgeries or whatever all was involved. They did everything you could do, but it was some 25 or 30 years ago that they did it. And this individual who was born a male, biologically male, came to the realization, and they were in their 60s, they came to the realization that no matter what they did, no matter what they tried to do, no matter what they pursued, no matter what medical science offered them as a way to be the real them, 
He thought he was a woman trapped in a man's body. But at this point in time when I was reading the article, he had written, no matter what I did, I couldn't escape the reality that I'm a man. And it was so tragic because he was talking about how he's wasted his life. Because there's no going back from all the things he had done to him. But he was left with the realization that no matter what, of all the things I did, I'm still a man. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people in certain positions that would like to deny that story. And they would say that his experience is not typical. And whether it is or not, I don't know. I, I tend to think that it is, that he's just being a little bit more honest about it than some others might. But beyond that, I don't know. But it's so sad that for so many years of his life, he denied who he was to be something that he thought he wanted to be, something else that he thought he wanted to be. And the first thing that I thought about, well, the first thing I thought about was the tragedy of his life, as I mentioned. But the next thing I thought about was that's exactly how Christians do with the subject of righteousness. See, folks, you can't make yourself righteous. There's no place in the Bible that tells you to grow in righteousness. You can't do it. You might be able to grow and develop in righteous living. But that's not growth in righteousness. See, the only reason that you can be righteous is because you were born that way. That's what the new birth is all about. It's about being born again as a righteous individual. And there's only one extreme, extreme, extreme exception. Otherwise, besides that one exception, you can't do anything to lose your righteousness. See, when this guy started wearing women's clothes, that didn't make him a woman. He was who he was because of how he was born. That same thing is true for you and me spiritually. We are what we are because how we were born again to be. And what we were born again to be is righteous. Now again, people want to talk about the extreme. Well, what about, can I lose my salvation? Well, the answer, the short answer is yes, a person can lose their salvation. And Hebrews 6 talks about it. And it talks about the progressions of steps that a person would have to do, would have to uh, attain in God they would have to experience a place of maturity in God where they could with their eyes wide open willingly choose hell over heaven now the Bible indicates that there are people that do that I can't relate to that at all but what I can tell you is that most Christians never reached the stage of maturity, the place of maturity where they could even give away their salvation if they wanted to. So excluding that one exception, there's nothing you can do to lose your righteousness. But here's what happens. The devil tempts us, brings us to the place, influences us to where we commit sinful acts. 
And those sinful acts make us think that we can't be righteous because of the terrible things that we've done. But the reality is, you're righteous whether you feel like it or not. You remember John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32? Jesus is, is talking to a group of people. A lot of them were Jews. Many of them were the Jewish leaders. And many of them believed on Jesus. We focus over, uh, most often we focus on the ones at the very high end of the Sanhedrin, the high priest and such. And there were a good number of these guys that wanted to do away with Jesus because they were jealous of him. Jesus said, in one place it says that Jesus recognized that they had delivered him up for envy or because of envy. But there were others that believed in Jesus. And so Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. So Jesus marked a difference between believers and disciples. Now the believers believed that Jesus was the Christ just as there are a lot of people that accept Jesus as Lord and Savior in the church today. But Jesus said if you're going on beyond believing to become disciples, there's a very specific way that that takes place. Then said Jesus to the Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. So discipleship is about the word. And then he went further in verse 32 and he said, and you shall know the truth. In other words, if you continue in the word, it brings you to the place of truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So all the believers, if we accept this as a principle that, that endures today, then the church is filled with two kinds of people. Believers and those that continue in God's word to become disciples. But the believers aren't the ones that come to know the truth. The believers are not the ones that through the knowledge of the truth are set free. Only the disciples are. So it makes perfect sense that the church is filled with people that are bound. Because they're the group that aren't continuing in the word to know the truth to be free, to be set free. We shouldn't be surprised that the church is made up of people that don't experience victory in their Christian life. That shouldn't be a surprise to us at all. Jesus told us that's the way it would be. He didn't put it in church terms, but we understand the application. And even though the blood of Jesus was shed to make us righteous, which I believe is part of the truth that we have to know if we're going to be free from the condemnation of the devil. Despite the fact that Jesus paid the price for it, us to be righteous, which we are made when we become part of the family of God, when we accept Jesus as our Savior. In spite of that, there are scores. I hope this is not true, but I, I, I fear that it is. Maybe even the majority of church, majority of Christians, never come to the place where they accept their own righteousness. And that keeps them in bondage for the entirety of the time they're here on the earth. 
I can't help but think that when we get to heaven and we're standing with the Lord and reviewing our life, I can't help but think that there's so much of that time with him where he's going to see what we did and we'll see what we did and he'll say, you know, you were made free from that. The things that hold us in bondage will stand there before the Lord in some way or another. Maybe it's instant knowledge. Maybe it's something we just become aware of when we receive our redeemed bodies. I don't know about this. The method, I don't know, but I do know that there'll be a lot of things that when we see our life standing before the Lord, he'll make known to us that we didn't have to be in bondage to any of that. One of the reasons I know that to be true is the Bible says that after we get to heaven and see the Lord, he will wipe away every tear. What is there to be crying about in heaven? You're certainly not going to be crying about your surroundings. You're certainly not going to be crying because you made it. There's only two things I can think of that might make you cry in heaven. One is the realization of lost loved ones. People that we love and people that we care about. Family, friends, or whoever. That don't make it in. That'll be something to weep over. But the only other thing that I can think of that might make you weep in heaven. Is to see. Once and for all. What the Bible told us from the beginning. Was available to us that we never conquered here in life. We sometimes hear people say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord something. I'm going to ask him why he let me suffer through this sickness or disease or whatever. I'm going to ask him why he didn't answer my prayer. I want to stand there when somebody asks. See, that would serve as entertainment for me in heaven. <laughs> the reality is anything that holds us in bondage in this life is something that through the knowledge of the word we can discover that we were set free from. Not going to be set free from, but set free from. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I want you to see verse 17. For if, the word if is the word since. For since by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Now, the one man he's talking about is Adam. For by one man's offense, death reigned by one. In fact, maybe we ought to back up a little bit to verse 12, having read that much. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, if you compare this with some other scriptures particularly in what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Paul identifies that our condition before salvation, the problem that we have before we get born again, isn't that we sin. It's not even the fact that we're sinners. The problem is we're spiritually dead. 
See, spiritual death is identified and defined as separation from God. And every unsaved person on the face of the earth is spiritually dead. It's not a matter of whether they do sinful things or whether they live well. Do good things. That's what I mean by that. See, some people have the idea that I've lived a good life, so that that does it for me. Well, living a good life doesn't do away with the fact that you're spiritually dead. See, the real fact with the unsaved, the real problem with the unsaved is not sin. It's that they're spiritually dead. And they became spiritually dead because of Adam's sin. Death is what passed upon all men. Now, what do spiritually dead people do? Sin. But the problem is not the sin. The problem is the source of the origin of sin, which is spiritually death, spiritual death. That's why the Bible makes such a point of God saying over and over again that he will take the old spiritually dead spirit out of us and put one in that's alive unto God. And folks, that's what eternal life is. Eternal life is not just a long time. Eternal life is a quality of existence in which you're united with God. And if we ever came to the understanding of what that being united with God really entailed, the world wouldn't be able to contain us. See, folks, God didn't have to rearrange anything for Jesus to walk on water. He didn't have to rearrange anything for Jesus to multiply loaves and fishes to feed 5,000. He didn't have to rearrange anything. All he needed was a righteous person anointed of the Holy Ghost to do the work that needed to be done and accomplish these things because they were necessary. If walking on the water was as necessary for you and me as it was for Jesus in that one instance, we could walk on the water. Now, what made it in... uh, necessary in Jesus case well he was fulfilling the ministry plans of his father but when Jesus appeared and they saw him walking on the water Jesus didn't make a big deal of the fact that he was walking on the water he just simply said don't be afraid it's me and we assume that that should have brought the the response from the disciples oh it's just Jesus he's always doing stuff like this We look at it and we say, wow, what superhuman person can do that kind of stuff? Well, the reality is every God man on the earth is able to do that kind of stuff. But because we don't know, because we haven't come to the place that Jesus was where he was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt who he is and what God had for him to do, then we're left sitting on the outside looking in. But folks, the the issue with, with Jesus walking on the water in and of itself wasn't such a big deal. We know that because Jesus told Peter to come. When Peter challenged him, if it's you, tell me to come and walk on the water with you. He said, come. Jesus didn't say, oh, silly Peter, don't you realize I'm the son of God? You can't do this. This is only stuff that I can do. But one word from Jesus, the word come, made available a place for Peter to walk to Jesus on the water. Now he failed. But you can't say that he never walked. It says specifically, Peter came down out of the boat and walked in the water to go to Jesus. 
Now, we, we talk about what caused him to fail. He looked and saw the wind boisterous and the waves coming and stuff. And we make jokes about it and say, well, of course, everybody knows you can't walk on the water when the wind's blowing. But the reality is, Peter, an unsaved man, acting on the truth of the word Jesus said, and that truth of the word was just one word, come, walked on the water to go to Jesus. For a few moments, Peter experienced the benefits of being a God-man. For a few moments. His acting on the word of God. And remember what Jesus said. He said to those that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Back to verse 12 again. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Skip down with me to verse 17 again. For since by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Notice the foundation for you reigning in life. Notice the foundation for you exercising authority in life is the gift of righteousness that came by the grace of God. It's not the gift of righteousness that will come by the grace of God when you and I get to heaven. It's righteousness that's already yours. Now, folks, you can't take away that righteousness. The devil can't take away that righteousness. No act of yours can take away that righteousness because that's how you were made. Just as surely as Jesus was made sin for us, you and I were made righteous by his sacrifice. What good does that do us? Well, this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. James 5.16, the last part of the verse says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I think it's the amplified version that says the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available. Makes tremendous power available. See, the devil tells us that we can't be righteous so our prayers can't get answered. And we read scriptures like James 5.16 and we say, well, yeah, if, a righteous person. And we think that's not us. Because we think righteousness is affected by behavior. Righteousness is affected by self-identification. Righteousness is affected by you accepting the truth of what God's word says. Now folks, I've got news for you. Jesus has just as much right and just as much reason, maybe even more right, more reason, to upbraid the church today for refusing to accept the righteousness that he told us we were made as he had to upbraid his disciples because they didn't believe that he'd be raised from the dead. Righteousness is an established fact. It cannot be undone. It was done by the, by the, the power of God. It was provided by the power of God. And you're not strong enough to undo it.
And the devil's not either. The devil's influence over you is not strong enough to undo the righteousness that Jesus paid for with his blood. What does that mean for us? Well, in the simplest terms, it means that we have to start accepting that our righteousness is of God no matter what. We may be tripping and falling. We may be stumbling over something. And most people stumble over the same few things over and over and over again. You remember what Jesus told the rich young ruler when he came to him? Rich young ruler asked, what must I do to be saved? Jesus refers him to the commandments. He said, keep the commandments. The rich young ruler says, I've done all these things from my youth. Jesus said, there's only one thing you lack. Sell what you have and give to the poor that you may have treasure in heaven. The one thing he lacked was treasure in heaven. And one of, if not the only way that you get treasure in heaven is you give of your substance here. So Jesus told him, there's only one thing you lack. Now, folks, if there's only one thing that we're missing, we're doing pretty good. And that's generally the way people live. They don't stumble in sin over a thousand things. They stumble over one or two things over and over and over again. Well, what's going to break that cycle of us stumbling over the one or two things in our own lives? I believe the foundation stone that brings you to the place of authority over those things that we stumble over is the acceptance of the fact that we've been made righteous. One of the hardest things for us as believers to accept is that in spite of the sin that we commit, the real us, the real man on the inside is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And without that knowledge, without continuing in the word to come to that knowledge, we'll never be free. This seems like a paradox, and the devil wants you to think that it is. But the thing that pleases God more than anything else is in the midst of us stumbling over sin, we declare ourselves to be the righteousness of God. Now, that seems like the last point, the last moment that we should make that confession, but exactly that confession and exactly those moments are what give us victory over the things that we stumble over. When the devil tries to make us think that he's got us, we're trapped, he's robbed us, for us to declare that we're the righteousness of God in Christ, what we did may have been the wrong thing to do, but it doesn't change the reality that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I've never found anything in my Christian experience that the devil fights harder than that. And now I know why. Because to confess in every circumstance, circumstances where we're doing right or circumstances where we're doing wrong, in every circumstance to declare what God's word says is true magnifies what God has done in our lives. You have been made righteous. Not the kind of righteousness that can be lost through your own actions but the righteousness which is of God accomplished by Jesus who finished the work you are the righteousness of God
Say this after me. I am born of God. And when I was born again, I was made righteous. Not according to my works, but by the blood of Jesus. Nothing can change that. The, the blood of Jesus was an eternal price that was paid to make me to become righteous. That's who I am. That's who I identify myself to be. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that will never change. When we make that confession to the point where our eyes are open to the truth, the devil loses somebody he can influence. Doesn't mean we'll never sin again. But he knows he's whipped in our lives when we come to that place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are born into your family, made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And because we've received that gift of righteousness, we expect to reign in life through Jesus Christ. Satan, we serve notice on you. You've held us back by condemnation for way too long. But now we've come to the place where Paul came to where we realize and accept that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which is righteousness, which is the fact that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus himself, that has set us free from the law of sin and death. Sin has no longer hold on me. Any work of the devil has no longer hold on me. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil and he made a place of righteousness for me and the family of God. Thank you, Father, for opening our eyes to that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Folks, you are the righteousness of God. Whether you ever accept it or not, you are the righteousness of God and will always be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for being with us. God bless you. Have a great day. Come be part of the prayer service tonight if you can, and you're dismissed.